Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm James. And this is the Decahedron RPG Podcast. Hi, James. Hi, Joe. You know what today is? No, what is today? Today is Feedback Friday. And you know what that means? Oh, mail call. Mail call from the United States of America. All right, so today's going to be a quick little mail call episode. Because we have such a backlog of voicemails, I'm going to run two episodes every week until we're caught up. Uh, We have our normal Wednesday episode, and then we'll have feedback Fridays. Today, they are all from Jason. Surprise, surprise. Um, We did have some from Evil Jeff. Those are in the episode that we're playing next Wednesday. So if you tune in on Wednesday, you will hear those. But for these, these are the ones from Jason. And the first one from was from episode number 27. We talked about, like, where do dungeons come from? And Jason sent in this. Hey, guys, just listen to your latest episode. I understand the desire to make dungeons make sense. I am able to avoid that usually. That's probably because I don't run long, long campaigns. So if your campaign's only a few months long, you can get away with it a lot easier, right? You can have a dungeon a wizard built as a test, like we see in the... Um, Krongar stories by Gardner Fox, or you can see the, you know, you could do something like what we have in Red Nails, of course, by Robert E. Howard, or, you know, when you look at Tunnels and Trolls, the, you know, the dungeons and Tunnels and Trolls are just, you know, built as challenges for the adventurers, and they charge them to go in and try their luck, and it, it's kind of silly, but for a shortish campaign, that works better than a long-term campaign. Although in a long-term campaign, I do feel you get away with one of those, one or two of those. Not every dungeon could be that. But you could have one or two dungeons that are challenges or, you know, things like that. But I think the idea of lost cities that have been buried over, you know, the mythical Seattle underground like we see in the um, Night Strangler movie with Darren McGavin or... Th- there are a bunch of options here, I think. And I I don't think it's a bad idea to have them make sense. And a lot of your dungeons, if they're not mega dungeons, you know, they can be crypts and they can be lost temples, and they don't necessarily have to be underground. I mean, you can have multi-story buildings, right, that are dungeons. So there are a couple ideas, though, on these ever-changing dungeons these, that don't make sense called the Mythic Underworld, and I've, I've sent you a link to a blog post. Um, Philodemy's Musings is maybe the first place that's talked about, and that's quoted, and it's entirely in the blog post, and there are links to other things, and the blog author writes about some other things. And then I also link to, or I also mention... Dr. John Eric Holmes' book, The Maze of Peril. Of course, Dr. Holmes wrote the first basic set for D&D, that blue box basic set in, what, 77, I think? And Holmes wrote a book called The Maze of Peril, which is a fiction book. But in that, he uses the mythic underworld idea. And it's funny because when you read that book, it reads much more like a Tunnels and Trolls than the, what I think of D&D. So Holmes, even though his rules seem pretty serious probably played a pretty lighthearted game. I mean, his book has, like, centaurs being taken to court because they they broke through the floor of a bar and having to pay damages to the bar owner. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a lighthearted book. I mean, it's serious. There's character death, things like that in there. But, you know, when you read Holmes's book, it, and he wrote a lot of short stories for Dragon Magazine as well. You, there's collections of them out there, although they're super-duper expensive. But if you have old Dragon Magazines, you can find old writings of Holmes. You know, his stories show a world that, you know, strikes me much closer to the Tunnels and Trolls kind of fiction than 
or at least the tone of the Tunnels and Trolls books and the tone of the D&D books. But I prattled on long enough, so thank you for that latest episode. Really enjoyed it, and I look forward to your next one. James? I'm not sure what to say in that. Uh, I'm going to disagree with him. I still have this idea that a dungeon has to have a preface. It just can't be sake of argument. In the middle of woods, guarded by pixies. And it's a massive dungeon, and there's nothing going on inside. I, I don't think he said anything like that. Anyway, um, so there's there's four things. I put up four fingers while I was listening, but I didn't take notes. So good luck for me remembering them. So first one is uh, John Eric Holmes. John Eric Holmes is very special to me because he wrote the first version of D&D that we ever played. Mm-hmm. The little blue cover that you got for Christmas. Everyone yeah. calls it the, the Holmes edition. He wrote that. So he holds a special place in my heart because he was my introduction to the hobby. I will say, however, in interviews with his son, Christopher, oh, what was, there was, oh, I can't remember, The Wizard's Attic, maybe? No, it's, um, dang it, if I remember the name of the blog, I will find it and I will put it in the show notes. Right now, it's skipping my mind. Uh, There was a name, there was a blog where uh, this dude had somehow acquired Holmes's draft for basic D&D. And he went through it like page by page and was comparing it, the draft to the final copy because Holmes didn't throw in all those things for, you know, to go beyond third level, go, you know, grab advanced Dungeons and Dragons. He didn't know that was going to be a thing that was added by someone in TSR. (laughs) So yeah, anyway, the blog did, you know, the comparison of all, you know, what finally came out versus what was in there. But he also did interviews with Holmes's son, Christopher, Chris Holmes and Chris Holmes has been in some podcasts I've listened to. And Chris Holmes said that his father didn't really play D&D. His father played uh, what we now call Arduin. And so that's why maybe his stuff doesn't sound very D&D-ish. I mean, Arduin is really just a D&D set of house rules to the extreme. But so that's why that doesn't sound like that. Um, dungeons don't have to be underground. I agree completely. And in fact, one of the mm. things I've been wanting to do for a long time, but I haven't done it. It's actually, it's both underground and not is I've been wanting to make an inverted dungeon that's on a mountain. So your lower levels are really the, the upper levels. So at the base of the mountain, is going to be like your orcs and your goblins and all those. And as you go up the mountain, it gets more and more challenging until the very top of the mountain, that's where the dragon lives. Because from the top of the mountain, he can fly off and he can steal cattle and all that stuff. But, you know, with, with a few levels in between there. Uh, mega dungeons. Yeah, for some reason, I've always wanted to make a mega dungeon. And I never really have. My very first dungeon in itself was one two, three, four. It was six pages of graph paper was the first level. And then there was a staircase going to the second level. I never finished the second level. There was a a riddle on the door to the staircase that people would have to answer. Uh, Unfortunately, no one ever got it because I had no second level prepared. I would have winged it. There is a gamey thing I like about Mega Dungeons is that it gives the players, you know, you do the traditional, as you go down in layers, levels, Or, in my other example, as you go up the mountain, you know you're going to encounter higher levels of challenge, but you're also going to encounter higher levels of reward. So it gives the players that choice. Do we want to go there knowing there will be more challenge for the additional reward? And when you have the mini dungeons, you you take that, we're going to call it player agency, you take that level of player agency out of it. 
You're okay, you're fifth level, so I'm giving you a fifth level dungeon. Eh. That's me. What was the other thing he said? Not every dungeon needs to make sense. Right. He said not every dungeon needs to make sense. And I'm going to disagree on that. Well, no, he says not every. So if you're playing the campaign and you run across one silly little one, I, I, I think I'd be okay with that. Okay. And, and just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. It means that you just haven't figured out what the sense is, right? So mm, true. So I'll, I'll give it that. I think that's all I have to say about that. Do we have time for another one? Sure. Go on. All right. Let's do uh, from episode number 29, where we talked about uh, rolling treasure. That was actually answering one of Jason's questions. So let's do it. Hey, guys. Jason here. Just listen to episode 28, I think. No. 29. Rolling Treasure. Wow, I'm screwing this up and I can't re-record it because it's been this. <laughs> so, great episode. Um, do not hold against me that the only thing I drink is coffee, water, and alcohol. But, I I mean, we have one of the three in common. You guys drink water. So, Hackmaster, beautiful, beautiful book. I actually don't have the old Hackmaster. I have the new Hackmaster books. They all have code leather covers. Beautiful, beautiful. The All three volumes are, are great. There's two volumes, I think, of the new Hey Jason, I'm going to interrupt right here. Yeah, I'm very curious about the newer edition of Hackmaster. How does that differ from the first edition rules-wise? The first edition I always avoided because it was just a too much text. I didn't want to read that that many books. And B, uh, it was based on second edition AD&D, so it was very crunchy. That's not my thing. So is the first? Uh, I mean, is the newer edition still that crunchy? Colin, let us know. The as far as rolling for treasure, I don't disagree with what you guys are saying, to be honest. I definitely agree that watering monster tables should be catered for the location. And, you know, lately, I'm kind of like Joe. I run a lot of games that don't use, you know, I don't run D&D. I play in D&D kind of games because that's what other people want to run. But I run other games. I run Barbarians Lemuria as a fantasy game. But that's sword and sorcery. So a magic item is more likely to be cursed than anything. And treasure you just have to dump at the end of the venture to get your experience. You have to squander your, your loot so you can get experience in that game. So, you know, and the other games I run are modern games, so the treasure is not really applicable, right? So I, I the thing is, if you run Rules as Written, yes, I know, haha. But if you run D&D, TSR D&D, Rules as Written, especially AD&D, when you look at the experience for Magic Item, even if you roll up randomly, because I actually do prefer to roll randomly, but it's okay if you don't get any items that are applicable to the party because you can sell them. And you get more experience points for selling Magic Item than you do for using Magic Item, getting a Magic Item and using So it's actually okay to get that Magic Item your party can't use because you can sell it. And, and then you get not only get a bunch of experience, you can get a bunch of gold. And you need that gold because you have training. And I know how you guys feel All about right. training. So, James, when you listened to this before we recorded, you said experience for gold for selling magic items. And I said, I don't know. Look it up. Did you look it up? No, I was too busy. But, I mean, when we played, you never got re- experience points for selling treasures. You got experience points for getting it out of a dungeon. But why would you get experience points for selling? Because it's gold, right? So if you found a painting in the dungeon and the painting's worth 10,000 gold, when you bring that out of the dungeon and you sell it for 10,000 gold, you get 10,000 experience points. So why wouldn't it be the same for magic items? On the other hand, I do also remember 
Gygax saying that you don't get treasure for ma- uh, experience points for magic items because the magic item itself is its own. So I don't right. remember the exact rule in AD&D. If someone wants to look it up and let us know, I'm very curious. But as for the selling it, I mean, yeah, you're going to equate it to the painting. And then the reason for selling it is because let's say you bring up a 10,000 gold piece gem, but you only manage to sell it for 2,000. Why should you get 10,000 experience points? You'd only get 2,000, right? And so you have to go by the, the price that you sell it for. The other thing I'm going to say is that the world that you're describing there, Jason, is a world I do not like to run. I hate worlds where magic items are so common that people just come across them and sell them willy-nilly and that you have the, you know, Eddie's Emporium of Magic Items. I guess Eddie's Enchanted Emporium would work better. It's more alliterative. Anyway, yeah, I, I don't like that kind of world. I hate that kind of world. I mean, you could still probably sell a magic item, but to get a the fair and right price, you would have to go out and find the person who wants that item, and it would be a quest of its own. Anyway, that's just my preference for a world. James, any other thoughts there? No, I'm I'm thought out on that one. Right. Let's continue. Anyhow, thank you so much again for answering my question. I really enjoyed listening to it, and I look forward to your next episode. And I'll have to think about uh, I, I, I've got a question for you. Here's an easy one. What was the last role-playing that you guys played? The last session was of what? Take hey, care. thanks, Jason. So for everyone, that last part, James and I do a question at the end of every episode. It's kind of a you know, get-to-know-us-better. Uh, if you want to write in or call in, let us know your answer to the question. That's fine, too. We'll We'll play them. And James had wisely reached out to everyone and said, hey, why don't you send us your questions? And so that was one that Jason sent. We listen to the voicemails as they come in, which is sometimes weeks before we respond to them on on the air. And so we've already responded to that one. Uh, But we do thank you, Jason. And I do want to let everyone know that Jason is the host of the Nerds RPG Variety podcast or cast i've already talked about that in a different episode um anyway it's a great show he talks a lot about media i enjoy it a lot it's one of the the shows i subscribe to so yeah thanks for the question we've already answered that one jason i think we're also going to wrap this one up we on the last episode recorded which will be the next one you hear did not get to ask a question because we ran out of time so i do have a question for you james and then we're going to wrap up go for it the question is, who was your childhood celebrity crush? That is a hard one. There was a lot of lovely ladies. Just let's say all of the angels. Oh, all right. That's that's interesting. So so as a child, you were, for lack of a better word, lusting after adult women. Uh, did it all, kids? No. So I'm, I'm about to give you give you my list. And my list were all people that were my own age. So that's interesting. Um, And by my own age, that doesn't mean that if you were to look up when they were born in IMDb, that you would say, oh, yeah, that's the same year year Joe was born. Uh, Because the way TV works, you know, you see something reruns years and years after it's on, well, was first made. And so you're watching a person in their past. So my list, I have three people because childhoods is a broad range, right? Childhood goes from birth to 18-ish, right? And so depending where on that spectrum you are, my answer is going to be different. So of course, at birth, nobody. I'm going to start at my older one. I'm going to go to my youngest one, and then we're going to meet in the middle. 
So my oldest one, her character name was Barbara Cooper. And the name of the show was called One Day at a Time. And the actress oh. was Valerie Bertinelli. Yeah. Little teenage Joe had a big crush on Valerie Bertinelli. And he was devastated when she went off and married Eddie Van Halen because he was convinced that she was saving herself for, <laughs> for me. Sure, <laughs> um, Joe. Wishful thinking. Yep. So I, I stopped listening to Van Halen back then. Um, all right. So jumping over the, the Middle Ages and going to Younger Joe, Younger Joe was a big fan of Eve Plum, who played Jan Brady, the middle of the Brady girls. And specifically, I remember as a young child watching the Brady Bunch. Well, first of all, the Brady Bunch is the first show where I saw the credits and I asked my mother, how come they all have different names if they're <laughs> brothers and sister? And my mother explained to me that actors pretend to be somebody that they're not. So, so that was the show where I learned that. But anyway, Eve Plum, there's an episode where, uh, where Jan gets her glasses and everyone's picking at her and she feels very self-conscious. But I remember thinking that she looked very, very cute in her glasses. And I just wanted to write her a letter and tell her not to feel bad and that she was very pretty and that I liked her. So and did you <laughs> that do it? Is the, no, I didn't. That is the, the very young Joe. And in between there, there was a there was there is an actress. Uh, her name at the time, I have no idea what it is now. Her name at the time was Pamela Ferdin, and I actually had to look that up because nobody knows who that is if you say that. Pamela Ferdin, she was kind of a, a character actress, a child character actress, which is sounds weird to say. So, you know, a character actor is one that's never like the headline, you know, the main star of a movie or a show, but they're constantly working. Also call them like a working actor or stuff. Uh, Netflix once had this great, documentary called that guy who was in that thing where it just talks about <laughs> these these character actors and you know interviews a lot of them like one of the guys says oh star trek everybody does star trek you know because they go through so many so many guests and these days it would be like law and order right everyone's been on a long order True. but anyway pamela Lynn ferding she was like on four episodes of family affair as a different character each time she was an odd couple she was Felix Unger's daughter, Edna. And she also, earlier, she had another character that was completely unrelated, but also an odd couple. So I knew her from Odd Couple. I saw her there. And on Star Trek, there is an episode called And the Children Shall Lead, which is one of my least favorite episodes. I hate that episode. Anyway, but she played a character called Mary. And I remember as a young child uh, liking her there. But the place I really remember her from in that she really uh, got my attention. There was this show called Space Academy. I don't know if anybody else in the universe is going to remember it. It was called Space Academy. It was about this bunch of kids pretty much in space. The title tells, tells it all. It starred Jonathan Harris, who was Dr. Smith on Lost in Space. It starred him. And there was a, eventually a spinoff series called Jason of Star Command. And that one starred... oh. James Doohan. That that was a spinoff series. But in their first ones, Space Academy, she she had a lead role in there. She was the the lead female student. And that is where I saw her. That is where she first got my attention. And those are my three childhood celebrity crushes. <laughs> okay. Entirely different from me. 
Yeah, you you were lusting after adults. I was staying in my I was staying in my zone. <laughs> I have nothing left to say about that, other than thanks for joining me, James. Thanks, Joe, for this interesting discussion. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, thanks everyone very very much for listening. Please please write in or call in. Oh yeah, James, we have an administrative note. We have a new way for people to leave us feedback. Okay. All right. So in addition to calling us at whatever the phone number is, it's it's in the uh, the show notes. I always forget the 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 area code because I grabbed the number from Google Voice because the number spelled RPG Cast and we have the Decahedron RPG Cast. So I thought that was perfect. But the area code is somewhere in California, which I don't know, but I couldn't pass it up because the the number was perfect. So anyway, you can call the call in. That's Google Voice. They give you like two or three minutes. That's probably the best option. But if you don't live here in the States, you know, if you have to make a long distance call to leave us feedback, that's not worth it. So the old way was to go to anchor.fm and find our page and click message and record it that way. The problem with that is that you need an anchor account or a Spotify account to do that. And I know that not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody wants to give Spotify their personal information because they make you make this account. So I found another service, uh, Jason over at Nerds RPG Variety Cast. He uses a service called SpeakPipe. But in a recent episode, he and his listeners were talking about how the audio quality of that sucks. So I'm trying a different one. This one's called Telby. And our URL, though, doesn't say Telby in it at all. So if you want to send us feedback and you don't want to call in, I picked this one because it doesn't collect any personal information. There's an option where I could have made you left an email address or something. I turned that off. Right now, I'm currently using the, the free version. If it works well, I will actually pay for it. The URL is say hi as one word. So S-A-Y-H-I. Say hi dot chat slash decahedron. D-E-K-A-H-E-D-R-O-A. You know, it's the name of the podcast. So say hi dot chat slash decahedron. Uh, call in, not call in, go there, use the microphone on your computer, and you can leave us a 60-second message. Uh, so that is the new way that you can leave us feedback. Anyway, please do leave us feedback. It really keeps the show going. It makes me feel that we have people who like us. That's all I have. Bye, James. Bye, Joe. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Decahedron RPG cast. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message by calling 562-774-2278. That's 562-RPG-CAST. Or by visiting sayhi.chat slash decahedron. You can also email us at feedback at decahedron.com. Links are in the show notes. For more information, visit decahedron.com. Remember that Decahedron is spelled with a K. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Logo is by Design Cat. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep those dice rolling.